Hey everyone, welcome to Semi-Intellectual Musings. Uh, this is Philip Primo. I am joined by a special co-host guest, Aaron Henry, uh, for today's episode. He is a longtime friend. Uh, we went to school together at Carleton University. Aaron is completing or completed a postdoc somewhere kind of in between. Um, but he's with us today. Um, so say hi, Aaron. And uh, why don't you give, uh, I don't know, a couple sentences about who you are. Sure. Uh, thanks for the introduction there, Phil. Um, I'm happy to have this chance. So, uh, been listening to a few of them. A few of your uh, podcasts are great. Um, He's one of our three listeners. Yeah. Well, no. I listen twice, so actually, then two. <laughs> two to three. Um, I, uh, um, yeah, I actually, sadly, you've kind of encapsulated most of, uh, most of what there is to say about me. Uh, I was uh, a graduate of the uh, political economy program and uh, sociology program at Carleton. Um, I've uh, been working a little bit on uh, a number of academic areas, but particularly I'm kind of focused on historical sociology uh, and state formation, and I'm getting kind of more into sort of those areas, how they relate to common sort of anxieties and concerns, I guess. Uh, and you moved uh, like a couple times across the country. Yes, I have. I'm part of the the newly established uh nomadic precariat academic class. Um, so yeah, I was uh, in Edmonton for a while and uh, we've recently moved back to Ottawa and I'm actually kind of, as Phil was saying, kind of between things, but I'm also working uh, with public service too at the moment. Nice. And you're from BC? Grew up in Victoria. So we have Matt from Surrey and now you from Victoria. This podcast seems to be trying to bridge the East and the West. It seems to want to do that. I don't know why. So yeah, it's a long-standing mission. <laughs> uh, Aaron, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. The reason why Aaron is with us, uh, as uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, um, you will have realized that Matt uh, Matt's putting out a little kid. Uh, a mini Sanderson is uh, coming into the world very soon. So over the course of the summer, uh, we wanted to be able to give Matt a break from the podcast, but because we are committed to putting out new episodes, uh, we found a special co-host, uh, Aaron. And you really, like, to be honest, you've been on the on the list, the short list of people for, like, since the beginning. Uh, you know, you, you, we, we thought of you. That's, that's very nice. I'll we thought of you. To disappoint. <laughs> well, I'm sure you won't. You, you, you'll do great. Um, but Aaron does have kind of a plan uh, for a few episodes. Tell us what you have planned for us. Uh, kind of go through... You know, at a high level, the next four or five episodes, what are you going to talk about? Sure. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. Um, so we sort of have, uh, I guess, there's four kind of big parts, and they're probably going to get divided up into maybe multiple multiple episodes. Yeah, we might, we might have to do part one, part two. Exactly. Um, so we're sort of looking at this overarching, though, this kind of this number of themes. So the, number, the first sort of theme that I think we're sort of currently kind of touch upon because it's already kind of been mentioned in, in other podcasts in varying varying degrees is a question of survival. Um, so why survival seems to be so important today? Uh, why a number of our media are orientated around questions of survival? Why it is people like to try to outrun supposed zombies, right? All those dreaded zombies. Exactly. Um, and also to why there actually seems to be an increased number of, a certain increased interest in board games and video games that feature permadeath. 
Oh, interesting. So, we're, yeah, we're looking at kind of that, that thematic of survival. And the, the reason why we're going back to that is that there seems to be a cultural kind of anxiety around trying to diagnose the millennial condition. Yeah. And so there's been a number of efforts to sort of say, you know, this is what it is to be a millennial. This is not what it is to be a millennial. Or the millennials are different and they're, it's impossible to classify them because of the breakdown of media, right? That they, everybody has their own echo chambers, their own kind of personalized media themes. And so as a result, we don't have that common culture. And I'm not necessarily going to disagree with that, but I'm going to say that there does seem to be kind of a saturation of our, of our culture, of our society, around this theme of survival. And I think that that touches everybody, but it might be that demographic that is millennial has a particular affinity towards it. And when you say survival, what I think of are movies and books kind of like Into the Wild. Uh, but is that the sort of survival that we're going to be talking about? I don't, I, I, I don't want to jump the gun, but no, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I think that's there's definitely something to be to be mined in there. But I think there's that's kind of a a longstanding theme uh, in in literature is survival. But I think maybe to sort of illustrate this shift is that if you want to think about, I don't know how old you were, you probably would have been just a year younger. Um, in junior high, uh, Survivor came out. Oh, Survivor. Yeah, of right? course. That came, out as, that came out as a game show, right? Yeah, yeah. And in some sense, that was a, an attempt to sort of simulate what it was like to be in a, in a dangerous situation, right? It was this uh, simulated reality to the point that trying to experiment with the hyper-real to an extent, but ultimately not doing it to, to a certain degree, right? It was ultimately very, very... It, it was kind of like Robinson Crusoe on steroids. Exactly. That's nice way to put it. Um, and yeah, so I think if you're trying to think about that, where that episode came from and where we're at now... It's almost to the point that that's sort of playing at survival. And now that people are actually trying to contemplate survival as a real event, it's a, it's a reflective exercise, right? So rather than sort of a dramatic exercise, it's the way in which we might tune in to get ourselves engaged in situations that make us think, what would I do in X, Y, and Z? Right, right. So like uh, I have a case of water, I have some cans of beans, and I have like a, I don't know, like a flamethrower or something in case the zombies come and get me. Exactly. And why we're sort of attuned to that kind of thinking. Would yeah. Be maybe. Or a Dyson vacuum. I've always thought those things would be really good zombie killing machines. They kind of look like, you know. Like the, the vacuum? Cleaner? Yeah, like the Dyson vacuum cleaners. Like, have you ever seen the new ones? They look like they're like zombie killing machines. Well, maybe they're maybe they're ahead of the curve. Well, I mean, Dyson's on to something. <laughs> All right. Uh, survival as a first theme. What's, uh, what's your second one? So the second theme actually kind of comes from some of my postdoctoral research a little bit. Um, and so one thing that I was looking at for a long time was the history of the wolf. Um, why it is that the wolf as sort of this figure seems to erupt in certain kind of situations and scenes. And so you can kind of go all the way back to uh, Anglo-Saxon law when, when you were banished, you literally had the wolf's head put upon you, right? To more kind of contemporary renditions like the continual playing with the wolf as a theme in the new Fargo series for TV. Ah, uh, yeah, there it is. I love Fargo. It's a great show. So we're kind of getting into what it is uh, about the wolf that makes it such a compelling character and particularly what it might be able to tell us about our anxieties around civilization today. Now, um, Aaron, um, you know, he always kind of undersells himself when he says, oh, it picks up a little bit about my research. Aaron's research is historical sociology um, I'm not even going to try to condense it into a sentence or not because it's fabulous stuff. But one of the things that Aaron kind of taught me about the formation of Canada, uh, particularly around the Hudson's Bay Company, was that really the wolf pelt or the wolf, uh, you know, carcass 
played a intrigue, like a really important role in the economy, right? And kind of bringing people together and, you know, colonizing the country. Yeah, well, I mean, especially um, the the wolf's pelt, for instance, uh, in, in Alberta, uh, in sort of the 1880s, 1870s, was a really, it was a very important, uh, a very important pelt. It was something that the state would actually mandate that you go and shoot a certain number of wolves and bring them back. Right. The thing that was kind of interesting about it is that it became, and we can, we'll get into this in the actual podcast in a little bit more detail, but the wolf's pelt actually became a stand-in in many cases for indigenous people as well. Oh, and so okay. that kind of crossing over of what it meant to clear the plains, what it meant to enforce colonization meant that the eradication of wolves and the eradication of indigenous people occurred side by side. Right, right. Uh, so we have survival, the wolf. Uh, you have a third one for us? Yes, and this actually kind of takes its way off from this. We'll, we'll sort of explore towards the end of their episode on the wolf. Um, very short but very interesting kind of scene from The Shining where uh, Jack Nicholson basically ends up playing uh, the role of the big bad wolf, putting down the bring, breaking down the door to a very frightened uh, Shelley Duvall, right? That's the the classic scene with the with the that. hatchet into the 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 door, right, where he kind of busts open the door and then here's Johnny. That's exactly it, right? right? right, right and, yeah, yeah. and before that, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. Oh, he does say that. He does. Oh wow. Yeah, and so there's something interesting about this, and that's that if we go back to, um certain sociological theories that there's always kind of a relationship between the sovereign and the beast. And in that particular scene, we'll kind of get into it and analyze it, but there's sort of a, by Kubrick, there's an interesting deployment of Nicholson as both wolf and patriarch. Oh, okay. And so we're going to use that to actually get into sort of this last segment, which is uh, roughly termed, and it's sort of in in, uh, an ode for Matt, termed the fatherland. The fatherland. Very nice. So we're going to be looking essentially at uh, anxieties around the patriarch. And okay. It, yeah. All right. Um, but on today's episode, I think what we're going to do is uh, start to get into the notion of uh, survival. Aaron, do you have anything else to add uh, you know, as a way of intro into the next, what seems to be probably five or six episodes? Am I allowed to give any plugs for this beer? <laughs> uh, well, let's... We'll, okay. So we're going to do the beer after. We're, we'll do a recommendation... At the end, uh, for the beer, we are having a beer tonight uh, as a special occasion. We normally don't drink on the podcast, said said no one at the Simpod ever. Um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tell you how you can get into contact with us. Uh, you can tweet at us at the underscore s i m underscore p o d. That's the Simpod. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and your podcatcher of choice. Um, please get into contact with us. Send your questions, concerns, considerations for Aaron or myself uh, to our email. We'll do the best that we can uh, to reply to you. Um, and check out the section of our website, which is additions and corrections. Uh, on there, we're going to be posting lots of links, lots of pictures of stuff that Aaron is putting together for us. Um, I really look forward to it. Thanks again, Aaron, for stepping in. Special co-host for the next few episodes. Um, let's get on with the show. Sounds great. I'm the sole challenger. I'm the real damage. Now behold the cold and the straight magical. Cause the sky brings flies in the strong road. The heroes built out in the past and a fury. Pray on the power and pray to your father. Cause all of the quakes in the universe resonate to your heartbeat and your faith. Now break it all down for me.
Hey everyone, welcome back. We are joined by Aaron Henry, and we have a special episode uh, for you today. We're going to be talking about the notion of survival. Um, you know, uh, when Aaron and I uh, put this next few series of episodes together, one of the things that we had in mind uh, was something along the lines of like dystopian sort of conditions. Um, you know, dystopian novels. We, we, you know, previously on the podcast, we did Fahrenheit 451, which is a classic dystopian novel. And um, I think what we wanted to kind of do was to expand on that a little bit. Like, why is the dystopian novel important to us now? What does it mean? Why are we returning to it? Uh, these sorts of things. Um, so as a way to get into this, uh, Aaron, wh- what do you think dystopian novels are all about? Why, why do we care about them? Uh, it's a it's a great question. Um, one angle to take on take on this is that generally um, we don't actually do dystopian novels when times are bad. It seems counterintuitive, right? It seems that we would want to engage more and more with uh, with media and forms that reflect current conditions. But generally, humans are ostrich like, right? Like we actually like to go the opposite way. And so, if you look at sort of the the talkies that are coming out in the 30s and 40s are all, they're actually very pleasant films. Yeah, right, yeah. Like uh, Mickey Mouse and stuff, right? Exactly. And so this is a form of sort of escapism. And so what that kind of leaves with us today, though, is kind of a, an interesting uh, an interesting problem in, in some respects. Because if we, so let's just say, let's just entertain that that's true. Ent- entertain me. We'll entertain. We'll, we'll try and we'll say, okay, so we don't really go into uh, uh, dystopias when times are bad, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it kind of seems that on a number of levels, uh, things aren't great, right? Like in terms of our like, own, like right now, right mean? now, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, no, I, I mean, I don't think they're like they're not superb, right? Yeah, subpar. Um, uh, yeah. So that kind of gives us a question: Well, why is it that we have all these kind of media that essentially appear quite dark, right? So think, for instance, a show like The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, on the one hand, appears to us as an incredibly dystopic show, right? Like, a, it's dystopian. It's a, it's a future where civilization has crumbled. There's zombies everywhere. I'm sure everyone knows the show, but anyways. Uh, and There's a bunch know, of zombies. There's a bunch of zombies. People are, people are hungry and wandering around, right? But it might be the case that actually that show and a bunch of other shows aren't actually dystopian shows. It might actually be the case that maybe we can read those shows as parables of survivalism. And survivalism mm. might be somewhat neutral. It might not be dystopian. So, um, what you're what what you're saying is that there are some I'm going to call them culture like cultural artifacts things like TV shows books um, that might be produced or consumed kind of in an opposite so like when times are bad we we don't want to consume books that are bad we want something to cheer us up and then when times are kind of like mediocre uh, maybe we want to turn to a dystopian novel. Um, but what you're kind of leaning towards is to say, well, maybe the genre of dystopia that's coming out now isn't necessarily that. Like, is it something different? I, I, like, I don't know, because like uh, The Walking Dead doesn't seem to me to be like Fahrenheit 451 or like 1984. Like, it's something different, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that is kind of one of those cases where if you do, you go back to uh, Fahrenheit 451, you go back to Orwell's 1984, you look at A Brave New World. Um in some ways, the structure of those novels are very prescriptive, right? They're, they are cautionary tales or warning signs. Right, yeah. 
And I kind of wonder if you look at a show like The Walking Dead, or to take another example, one show that I actually quite like based upon a book, and the author's name eludes me at this moment, but um, The 100. The 100, uh, right. Okay, uh, yeah. Essentially, just the theme of the show is that there's been a catastrophic sorry, uh, meltdown of nuclear war on planet Earth, and a bunch of humans escape to the stars. For 100 years, they wait for the fallout to kind of go away, and then they come back. And the first group of people who come down are called the 100. Right, yeah. Anyways, these shows might actually not be, uh, on the one hand, they sound very much like a dystopic show, uh, but it might be more that we're looking at them, and this kind of touches upon earlier themes we've looked at in resiliency, that they're actually coping mechanisms. Yeah, and um, like we've talked about this a little bit about, um, particularly around The Walking Dead, how like, okay, yes, there's lots of zombies, there's lots of gore, there's that kind of stuff. But really the trajectory of the arc, like of the story, at least through like the first three seasons, is really this, how do you survive when shit is batshit crazy? Like, how do you eat uh, like a whole huge tub of, uh, what was it? Uh, was it Jello? It was up on the roof eating a huge, I think it was a tub of Jello. Or I don't know what it was. It was like chocolate basically eating like this huge tub of chocolate to survive. Right. Or like when you go into a Walmart and the ceilings caving in with like dead bodies and you're trying to get like a bottle of wine or something. Right. Yeah. So I think this is, um, I mean, so the, the comic book in the show, like Robert Krigman, right. Was trying to basically come up with this, with this experience that was going to force people to ask questions about what they would do. Right. And this is his big kind of turning point in his point of originality was that, you know, most zombie films end after the first dozen bites. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is okay. So the zombies win, the world crumbles. What, what do things look like now? And by asking those kind of questions, the walking dead becomes this really on one hand, rich kind of character arc. But the other part of it is that it's got these really strong themes of transcendence, right. Of character transformation, of perseverance, right. Like essentially, you know, diehard bonds and so on and so forth that take it away from sort of exactly that, all that gore and actually make it far more of a story that looks to, how do you survive and how does the act of surviving in chaotic conditions require these types of tactics of character transformation? Right. And so I think that's the resilience uh, bit that you're speaking about, right? So how do you survive or how do you rebound uh, in the face of adversity? Like that classic definition of resilience. And I think this, and this gets us back to that kind of, I think, initial question that has been posed elsewhere is that, and that we mentioned at the start of the show is that if you have a set of conditions, economic and social conditions that uh, are dynamic, right, that are continually in flux, increasingly we're told to think about huge disruptors, right? This puts upon people an emphasis of, you know, a series of buzzwords, right? Like to adapt, to be resilient, to be flexible, to be nimble, right? The nimble organization. Yeah, right? yeah. This is the other point is that it extends in all directions. On the one hand, it extends down to the individual who's told to develop these really specific coping skills, but it also now touches upon uh, enterprises and organizations that also have to change their habits in these particular ways. Well, if you have a society like that and people are living in those conditions, then it seems to me like quite possible that our cultural expressions then become quite similar, that they're asking us to imagine ourselves as these characters who can be dynamic who can change on a change on a dime and as a result what we're really talking about is a whole series of traits tactics and skills that would fall under the umbrella of survival right Right, yeah 
Yeah. And like The Walking Dead, I think, is a really good example because almost from the beginning, you have uh, the main character that is in uh, an institution, right? He's in a hospital. And that's kind of like the ground zero for where the show starts. Um, well, with this character's story anyway, in that he was like completely forgotten. And the only kind of reason why he's alive at that time is like they thought he was dead and they just left him there. So like it's a it's a breakdown of a fundamental institution and maybe like maybe like American viewers see it a bit different but like the healthcare system at least for us in Canada is one of those paramount institutions that you're always kind of looking for. So like in times of crisis uh we're going to think that the hospital is the place to go. Meanwhile, the first scene kind of shows that it's overrun. So like right away there's this very clear uh, narrative device that says, forget the institutions that you thought that you could rely on. And curious, that's yeah, it's a really good point. And again, that, and so on the one hand, that production, right, of the destruction of these social institutions is basically what are in many cases in many countries, uh, state institutions, right, have, have broken down. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that severing of that link already kind of tells us where we're getting at in terms of how individuals need to think about themselves, those types of support networks that they can draw upon, right? We're being told that essentially the traditional ones, the state ones are in decline. Yeah. Um, the other narrative though there that I think is actually quite important and I think we can miss it is that, that so that same act of waking up, waking up to catastrophe, waking up to a radically changed world occurs also in 28 days later. Oh, uh, so, wait, 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 28 days later. So 28 Days Later comes out, I think, before, I, I don't know if it comes out before the comic book of The Walking Dead, but it definitely comes out before the TV show. And 28 Days Later is essentially a very similar idea. It's a, it's a show where, uh, oh, it's a movie, where a character finds themselves waking up in England and essentially they're surrounded by zombies. It's zombies caused by a rage virus. But the point, the point that I think is actually quite important is that I can't, sorry again, I can't quite recall the name of the character in 28 Days Later, but Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead. Yeah. And this other character have this fundamental similarity in that they're both forced to wake up. And in many respects, I think that we could read that as a waking up from the American dream, waking up from the social contract, right? That individuals are forced to realize as an individual level that they need to awake to the fact that the world that they thought existed does not. And I think that's a message that now is so dispersed that it seems kind of elementary and obvious, but we're constantly constantly told to be self-reliant, constantly told to look to ourselves. And as a result, we need to sort of wake up to the fact that an earlier uh, social contract, which may or may not have ever existed, at, at least this point, definitely now does not exist. And I think this kind of takes us back to that other point, is that when we're thinking about survivalism, this is a this is a general cultural phenomenon that has taken hold, but it is a narrative, a narrative of personal transformation, of perseverance, of nimbleness, that I think is more descriptive for people who would fall under the millennial demographic than others. Well, it's interesting that you say that. So when you say, um, you know, that these shows have this element of waking up and waking up to in, in the face of the American dream, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is that Rage Against the Machine song where he's just, you know, screaming into the mic uh, what seems to be for like three minutes, wake up, wake up, wake up, right? Like he's trying to get his listeners, the fans, to like stop seeing the American dream for what, it supposedly is for really what it actually is. Right. Um, and you know, it, it was a whole bunch of millennials listening to Rage Against the Machine. It, it, like, yes, there was always this kind of protest music and we could continue on our discussion of cultural artifacts through protest musics and whatever. 
um, which also make a great episode at some point, but save that for another time. Um, but millennials are kind of the category, the social category, the social group that we were born. We didn't need to learn necessarily to wake up. We had to be woken up or we wouldn't necessarily be competitive, right? Like even at a very young age, like we needed to know what was going on. Like the, like, you know, the jig was up. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's definitely probably an apt characteristic, right? And I think the, from a very cynical standpoint, kind of the funny thing about it is that we sort of, you know, we'll put a cap, put or maybe put a cap on this pretty quickly, but we're kind of, as two people who are, you know, essentially within the millennial demographic, we're kind of born in the worst sort of possible moment in the sense that we were awake and aware but still kind of too old to take advantage of all the new conditions yeah. that were kind of coming into play. Like yeah. it's kind of that awkward period of time. But yes, this goes, I think this goes back to this really kind of essential point that there is this element that uh, if we wanted to try to understand a millennial condition or a millennial culture, and this has been a, a bit of a head scratcher for a number of other people. They basically say that, you know, we can't actually, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for this position, that we can't actually define millennials in the same way that we're able to define Generation Xers or Boomers because essentially millennials are without common cultural coordinates, meaning that through Netflix and streaming and other kind of essentially personalized media consumption, it's very difficult to produce uh, a common kind of culture that rather than um, reflects values, melds values, right? And that was kind of the claim that other generations had those shows that sort of brought a disparity of people into one framework. And we don't have that. And that might be true, but one thing, and so I, I have sympathies for that, but if we were to try to understand what it might be that seems to continually shape millennial outlooks, uh, sort of align people in terms of their ethos, in terms of the actions they'd like to take, I think that it is a uh, a relationship between an understanding of a society that is saturated by risk, by social risk, economic risk, and political risk, and at the same time, a society that now seems to function through modeling survival techniques in all sort of aspects. And so we've talked about this in terms of media, but there's a whole bunch of other areas too. Yeah, and I was just, I, I was going to kind of jump in and um, ask you to bring it back for a second. So when you say that we live in a society that is imbued with like risk uh, analysis, foresight, these sorts of things, well, like what does that translate to? What does that look like? So like what would um, like give us an example of a millennial who says uh, I'm, I need to kind of think about my risk uh, aversion or my level of risk, uh, you know, what are the sort of things that we do? Yeah, I think that's a that's a rather Big question, and it's, it's a good question to ask. I mean, I think that on some level we've been, since, you know, Beck, right, we've been thinking about risk in a lot of different ways. But I think, you know, if I wanted to be blunt and to the point about this, I think that for most people uh, who would fall into this kind of millennial demographic who might be particularly attentive to tropes around survival, uh, the main risk is just precarity. Right. And that mm. precarity is, you know, I think that precarity is a perfect kind of umbrella in the sense that, of course, there's employment precarity. So uh, increasingly people's jobs uh, within a certain age group are very much con contractual and poorly paid, short. And yeah. the gig economy is a perfect example of that. But also precarity, too, in personal relationships. I think that um, the expectations of work, the expectations of moving have meant that many relationships 
that I think perhaps in earlier periods were stronger are now looking, appear, at least appearing, and they may not actually be, but they appear to be more brittle. So that's sort of a social risk. Um, and then essentially, too, all those sort of feelings just seem to produce a general sense of psychological risk and sort of insecurity. So, I mean, the rates in which people feel anxious. Yeah. 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 I mean, those are all common. Kind of. Yeah. And what I've um, kind of noticed is that there's a certain detachment that goes with uh, the, those exposures to you know, there's, there's certain social risks that you're talking about. So at one level, you have this heightened use of things like Facebook um, to create what is termed a relationship, uh, but really, you know, is something much more surface level, probably, um, in most cases. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, the, you know, you could, you can have, you know, really in-depth relationships with people through Facebook, or you can use Facebook as an extension to a real world relationship, et cetera. But at a certain level, things like Facebook and other social media platforms are pretty much surface level. So on the one hand, you have these, you know, heightened uh, kind of surface level relationships that then create this anxiety as to like, well, who are my friends? Like, like who, who is my social network? Like who are the people who I interact with? Right. And that I kind of see being like as a response. So that's the risk as a response to that there's like a detachment. Like, so there's this kind of like, uh, retrenchment of the need to have relationships in meaningful ways or whatever. Yeah, I think that's, no, I think you're quite right in the sense that the, the response is detachment or an increased, it works on two poles, but on one, on the one hand. So one sort of element of this is a fetishization of going alone. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. And this is borne out in a number of, again, cultural forms. So for instance, um, any kind of TV show that emphasizes a character uh, who is essentially perfectly self-sufficient socially or actually is asocial, right? And so there's this whole kind of insertion of an asocial character who can exist without support into television shows that are kind of... And the thing that's interesting about them is rather than being pitied characters, they're actually usually vaulted as, as having a lot of superiority. Right? Yeah. Um, the other element through those, that I think, is, and this is the other part, is that we have a complete fetishization of the concept of connection. Right. Mm -hmm. So Facebook, you're right. Like these, we have these series of superficial relations that, you know, you say, I met you once, let's add you as friends, blah, 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 blah. I've got 600 friends. And so what becomes fetishized is simply the number, right? You've got 330 friends or something. And you've got the same thing. It's the same sort of element on something like LinkedIn. You've got all these connections, right? And like, what are these connections actually, you know, sometimes they might do something, but for the most part, it's just, it's just the number. LinkedIn is weird, man. It's super weird. Like it's supposed to be a platform to help you find a job. Have you, do you know anybody who's gotten a job through LinkedIn? No, I think the the funny thing about it is that I think most of the <laughs> connections that take place within LinkedIn, if you do add people, it's because you're in a job, right? right? It's, yeah, it's people you know. Yeah, people you know add you, and you kind of get along that way. I don't. I think I do think what might happen is that people now Google people all the time, right? In sort of events. And so, and this is probably another site of insecurity and anxiety, which is ridiculous. But rather than LinkedIn being your asset, it's just something you need to defend, right? You need to have a passable LinkedIn profile because if they do Google you and it comes up and you're a mess, right? And your your LinkedIn profile's shitty, right? Then you're going to be called out. So rather than it being your asset, it's simply another point of insulating yourself against potential threat. It's like all these things are kind of like uh, the equivalent of opening your sock drawer or underwear drawer for people. And like, I, I, I don't know, like at a certain point, like 
fuck off. It's my work experience. Like, I don't know. At a certain level, if I need to give my CV to someone, I'm going to give it to them. But do I need to publish to the world uh, where I've been or what I've done? Now, I do, okay? Like, I'm saying I play the game. I have a LinkedIn. I have all those things. I do those things, right? I'm on, like, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We do it. But there's there still remains a part of me that's detached from it, where I'm just like, you know what? If I don't feel like, like you know, being active on the Twitter account today, I'm just not going to be. And, like, I don't feel bad about it. I just, I'm just totally detached from it for that day. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, that's, I mean, we can get into this whole other possibility uh, of an aside, but I think part of what you're, well, I think maybe part of what you're also alluding to, too, is just this uh, phenomenon that um, Simmel at one point pointed out with Metropolitan Life, that there was too much stimulus. Josh Simmel, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's too much stimulation, too much, like basically the shift from rural to city was causing people to go into manias, right? And I think, you know, really, if you want to think about what could affect the psyche, like we now have, rather than simply moving from the countryside to the city, we're in a city and we're also continually surrounded by these waves of information that we have to filter and control, right? Which is... Yeah. So as you're saying that, you're making these hand gestures... And for some reason, it's reminding me of these scenes from The Walking Dead where it's just these waves of zombies coming at them. And it doesn't matter if they're in the city or if they're out in the country, uh, which they go to in the show. But there's just always waves of zombies. I was like, shit, is it a parallel? Are the zombies actually like information and stuff? That's a really interesting way to read it. I mean, I don't know. I think the the common kind of perspective is that zombies are simply... uh, the ultimate form of other, right? Like just a character that can be killed off and destroyed with no moral concerns or problems. And so it has this relationship to a whole bunch of other, basically a relationship to colonialism, a relationship to internal violence, relationship, like all those kind of connections. But that's also an interesting idea too, that perhaps they're simply pieces of information. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Let's not make this about the, the walking dead though. Um, okay. Uh, I want to get into stoicism. So when, um, when we talk about things like survivalism, uh, link that to, uh, resilience, um, I can't help but think of things, um, like stoicism. Another one that we could talk about is, um, the resurgence of vitalism, but there, there, I, I think that there's definitely a resurgence of stoic tendencies and by a stoic tendency, I don't mean that we're going around practicing stoicism, um, like they did in ancient Rome or Greece. Like I'm, I'm not purporting that we all have gardens and that we're all meditating and stuff, but I think there are certain, um, reactions towards materialistic, uh, things, uh, that have a stoic flavor. And I kind of want to get your take on that. I, I know that you've read, uh, some, some stoicism lately. Um, so yeah, what's, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question again. Um, and there's a, there's a few angles on this. On the one hand, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think we've seen a, I guess, I think probably the way you put it is best. I was going to say authentic, but I think that's it's too loaded. We haven't seen like the return to uh, Roman sort of philosophical stoicism. There's no, no we're not wearing robes. No. Well, right? like, even, even in terms of the text, people aren't reading them in that way. Right? No, no. But what you do have, and we can see it, um, you know, if you're listening to the show, if you sort of type in like stoicism is a good philosophy for millennials there will be hits yeah um we've actually come up with a couple where it's basically talking to people that 
uh, one thing that would be very useful for a millennial or a young person in a very precarious and challenging work environment is to develop a stoic outlook where basically you do not fret over things that you cannot change. You develop a very clear understanding of what lies outside your control and what lies within your control. And I mean, in many respects, what lies within your control for stoicism is just simply your own emotions and reactions to external stimuli. We don't quite get into that level of detail, but that understanding is still kind of rooted. Um, yeah, and uh, the articles that Aaron um, mentioned, we're going to throw up in the show notes. We're going to put some links to them. We're also going to put them up on the webpage, on the corrections and additions section of the webpage, so you won't miss out on them. Um, but yeah, sorry. I, okay. I just wanted to, to say that. So then I think the question that comes down to it, and I think this is a really important point, is that what would it, what is it about our particular moment where something like stoicism and perhaps its relationship to survivalism is attractive? And so the number one thing that I think is important to consider is that what we're really being told and what we need to try to understand is that there are a series of things that are totally outside our control, right? And that's an important kind of point that gets driven home that essentially you might have had this understanding of a kind of career that you're going to have, but you probably won't actually have it. You might have understood you're going to have sort of this type of maybe financial security, you're probably not going to have it. You Maybe you wanted to have kids in your early 30s, you're probably not going to have that either, right? You're going to have all these sort of disruptions in terms of what you think is possible. The byproduct, and I think what's really important about this at with this sort of principle stance is that personally, like I, when I read Stoic philosophy, I quite like a lot of what's in there. But at, at a social level, basically, this also I think reinforces the individuality uh, that we have. Right, yeah. right. Basically, you're telling people there's no real like, way for you to exchange your external environment. So, if you think about that practically, that means, for instance, if your working conditions suck. We're basically being told, well, you probably can't actually get together in a union and put pressure and basically change right, change yeah. the game, right? Yeah, there's like this uh, political retrenchment that kind of happens with, within Stoicism. Yeah, so basically in, in our current moment, basically telling people that they just simply need to adjust their attitudes to unacceptable conditions is basically a way of automatizing individuals Yeah, and a way of basically pushing back the political vision for lines of social solidarity. Basically like give up. Give up and find your own internal coping resources. And I think a nice parallel to that, or sorry, maybe it parallels the wrong word, an accompaniment to that, is the hack. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh th- wait, like hacking or hacker or no, what like, do you mean by the hack? Oh, so, um, I mean, that's in itself a really interesting angle, basically the subversion of institutions through hacking, and we've seen a lot of that. But no, essentially the sort of this form of new age or sort of new 21st century online help referred to as hacking something so how to hack your budget how to hack housing right hackables like instructables but hackables yeah basically like how can you navigate a difficult system that you're if you navigate it the traditional conventional sense you will not succeed at how can you find a way to navigate it that gives you an advantage or an edge so for instance right right how to hack housing. Well, it turns out that rent in the city is $200,000 for a year. So there's no way you're going to be able to actually afford an apartment. That's obviously totally overblown. But yeah. the point being that rather than having your own apartment, maybe you could hack housing by having four roommates. Right, right. Or maybe you do get your own apartment and the, it's really expensive. So you find a way to skirt the municipal codes and you divide it into two apartments. Sure. Yeah, right? that sounds like a good plan. 
And that is actually, there is sort of a, an angle on that in something called Ollie, which is a co-living, it's a co-living platform, but basically it's, it's hacking housing, right? Okay. So the notion of a hack is basically a way to say these conditions that are completely unpalatable. They're impossible for the ordinary person to actually navigate and survive. So rather than actually saying, hey, this all seems kind of fucked up. Maybe we should change the system so people could actually get by. Let's give people hacks. Well, I've also seen like uh, 20 best camping hacks and those sorts of things, right? So like uh, you're fed up of making shitty ass dinner camping. Uh, Make a banana boat. Hey, why not? That's a hack. Yeah, of course. There's always like more sort of banal kind of versions, right? Yeah. But what you're, I think what you're talking about is the ones um, that try, instead of changing the conditions, material or social, that have led to some sort of problem, is to say, no, you know what, you're not going to be able to do that, uh, so just get around it. Yeah. And on the one level, like, I mean, there's nothing, we, I guess, how do I put this? It's not bad to have it's not bad to have those, right? Like I'd rather somebody is, is able to find a way to, for instance, you know, in a a pretty like crappy situation, able to hack monthly food, right? Right. Yeah. I'd rather someone is able to do that, but I'm pretty, I find it rather demoralizing and sad that that actually becomes our go-to form of action. And you'll note the most important thing about that again, is that it's entirely individualized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you're talking about uh, this sort of hacking. Um, when I hear of this word hacking, the you know the stuff WikiLeaks that kind of stuff kind of comes to mind. But board games, and so you know, as you know, uh, I, I enjoy my board games. I, I like I like my games. Um, playing a lot of games lately, a lot of cooperative games, which is you know we can talk about that. Um, but when I read online about which games are coming out or which ones that I have that I kind of want to read about them, there's always hacks, right? So how to get around the rules, how to make it a funner, like a better, like right out of the box, you're expected to kind of stop following what the game planners had in mind for you and do your own thing. Um, so I don't know. I think there's something there. Yeah, I think there is. And I think maybe there's a couple ways to read that. Uh, one way that I, I would wonder that is... So I don't I don't get to play as many board games as I'd like. Um, I do like board games as well. My my wife does not <laughs> enjoy them well, as much. Well, maybe we'll play a game after. Yeah. Uh, um, but I also play. You know, I don't play very much because I'm way too busy with a whole bunch of series of things. But I like time. To, you know, there's 24 hours in a day. Yeah. But I do like to play occasional video games, and there's kind of a similar. Uh, we'll get into this as well. But there's this similar kind of element of kind of survivalism nested in those as well but yeah. back to your kind of question is that i think what one way to read this is that there's been the migration of sandbox mode yes, so yeah. sandbox mode has come from a computer computer kind of world and worked its way into the board game world and just so that we're clear about what we uh, understand as sandbox uh sandbox is in relationship to the dev world so you have your development world and your sandbox world and your uh, sandbox world is not a product that is shared with a wide audience. It's kind of shared with a smaller kind of team. And that's where you do your tweaks and you do your kind of initial programming. And then it goes into develop mode, develop dev mode, which has a larger audience, right? Is that kind of how you understand it? Yes. But then the other element too is in some games, what they do is they'll have the game, right? Which they've obviously based off of the sandbox 
and it's got you know it's got a narrative it's got missions it's got far more mm, uh, direct and understandable rules okay and the other version that they'll sometimes allow you to play on the same side is a sandbox version where you don't have to do anything you can just kind of wander around and play with the mechanics of the game but you don't have to follow any particular quests you don't have to take any particular actions it's just okay kind of, so it's something contained kind of exactly okay cool um and so I think one, so then the question that you should sort of maybe you ask is, okay, so what is it about a game out of the box where they want to encourage players to get around the rules or that people increasingly want to play sandbox modes versus, and I, I don't think this is like a total shift. People still play the other games as well, but yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. now desirable to play a sandbox mode and you don't have people who feel overwhelmed by that level of choice and kind of autonomy. And I think that this actually goes back to our sort of main point um, that when we're thinking about our cultural forms today, that they're perhaps more uh, coping measures or survival measures rather than dystopian forms, well, it might also be then that when we're thinking about our board games, one thing that seems to come out with board games or computer games as cultural artifacts is that we like to have experiences where we're able to master, sorry, maximize our autonomy. We're able to basically follow our own sort of thinking and reason. Mm. Right, essentially, this and ultimately, when you think about those kind of parameters, what we're really saying is we like games that allow us to survive under our own kind of instinct. So, like, um, the thing that kind of comes to mind when we say that is, uh, we like to skirt um, structure. I think we like to skirt structure, but we don't like to do it necessarily out of simply a pure libertarian impulse. Right. I think we like to do it because it gives us an opportunity to test ourselves. Okay, and we're we're basically being primed to continually test ourselves. I think that there's actually a lot of affinity between the rise of board games that maximize kind of creative thinking and cooperative modes, but also sort of autonomy and maximizing your own individual abilities, and quite similarly, the rise of zombie fun runs. Yeah, that's where you get dressed up like a zombie, right? Well. There's a, a so there's that you can just sort of wander and that's actually I think that's far more of a, a bizarre kind of yeah, satire of protest. Weird, yeah. But the other other element is it's not just simply getting dressed up as a zombie. There's now events that take place you know biannually. I think there was one in Ottawa. I think probably four or five weeks ago, um, where a number of people sign up to run kind of a 5k obstacle course, and they the people who put up the race also hire people. Or get people to volunteer to be zombies. Oh, and the, the like they're chased. They're chased. Right. I saw that. I thought that was just fucked. It's bizarre, right? Yeah. But if you think about it, again, it's this, it's this sort of desire and need to have these moments where we're able to test our kind of our own understanding of our survival. And so if you think again about a show like The Walking Dead or The 100, which puts people into narratives of hostile environments and asks them to reflect upon their capabilities, well, this is simply an extension of that. This is basically rather than reflecting upon it in the abstract, it allows you to actually test your physical physical capabilities. Uh, now, a listener can uh, email in, I don't know the year that Lost came out, uh, but I do know that uh, the premise of one of the main characters, John Locke, was that he was being shipped off to one of these kind of uh, excursions, right? This test of physical manliness or whatever, and he had all these knives on him. It was a survival camp, I think, is what it actually was called or something like that. Yeah. So I, it's been a while since I've delved into 
the lost, it, yeah, like everybody, well, not everybody, but many people. I, we got lost and lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's there. Um, I'm glad we've got that coda built in. We can just say that to get to, get to the point. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I think that's, he's a, a very interesting character in that regard. And that, again, I think too, it'd be really nice to know actually when that show did come out and when it was conceived, because in many respects, that's kind of the archetype survival character right right yeah resilient perseveres very transcends the situation right is and throughout the entire show is able to sort of show his resourcefulness to the max and i think to some degree though i might be wrong i don't quite know how the mechanics work but did he not get kind of subverted did he not ultimately become the face of the evil force yeah i think so yeah i mean it got a little weird right uh so I, i i i can't purport to know exactly everything that happened that show um, it's, it's funny because I realized that I hadn't watched, uh, the last and second to last episode. Um, I, so I, I, for some reason I was going through, uh, some films that, you know, I have on my computer I was looking through and then like, uh, the second, the last and second to last weren't played. Like I had just never played them. So like, so, I, like, up. <laughs> so and then I started thinking like, how, do I know how this thing ends? And I don't. Did did you watch them? And no, still I haven't know watched. How it ends? No, I no, I haven't watched them yet because I mean, like, it's so far gone. I would have to rewatch probably the whole last season to understand what was going on. Um, but I, you know, it's funny. Like, I've watched everything except the last two episodes. Like, who does that? Who doesn't watch the last two episodes of? Ugh. I think Lost Lost might have had that coming, right? That oh, basically, yeah. you know, at that point, the last two episodes probably didn't provide all that much clarity. But I mean. Getting back to this point, I think this actually leads to sort of this one other element I did kind of want to touch upon because I think it's sort of the dark irony in some respects um, is that we have a – if we do take out the word that society is increasingly organized around conditions of survival, right, and that we're interested in survival, we're thinking about survival, we're trying to maximize our survival, we're also kind of at a particular historical, I guess, watershed where we're screwed. Right, like in terms of our actual physical capabilities, yeah. right? Like people, no, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna include myself here, but like people are generally in terrible shape. People don't really have all that many skills to actually cultivate and grow food, right? They, sorry, I'm looking over your shoulder at a book called Generation Screwed. There it is. Yeah, so yeah, um, but essentially, like what I what I get get at the point is I don't know if we've really been at a point. I'm sure we have been for a while, but it does seem. If grocery stores were to shut down, if we were to lose our fuel sources, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And the interesting thing about this is that, I mean, one direction this has actually taken itself in is kind of the the corrective are people who become preppers. Uh, wait, say that again? So the one element of kind of this expression of the fact that we're very much inequipped for survival, despite the fact that we're constantly being primed to become agents of our own sort of economic and social survival is that you have a whole group of people called preppers who are emerging. So what is a prepper? Uh, Cause I haven't heard this term before. So what's a prepper? So the prepper has got a kind of a number of different kind of forms that it takes on. Um, and there's some other, I think there's actually some nice articles that deal with it in the New York times. And I think there must probably even another couple of podcasts that probably touch upon it as well. Um, but, very briefly, it's got a. On the one hand, you had for a long time, and usually this type of character made their appearance, unsurprisingly, in in sort of the, the zombie genre as a person who had their own water for years in a bunker somewhere, right? Who had their own weapons, who had basically their own survival kits. They were already prepped for the apocalypse. It's like they had like a bunker. They have a bunker where they've got their own supplies in a shed, and they're constantly reading up. 
right yeah. how to survive so that's kind of like the low kind of end of the scale right and that's in some respect that figure was sort of a marginal almost to a certain degree it was a point of satire yeah we'd make fun of these people we make yeah. fun of these people a lot right basically they're the, they're the y2k fanatic they're, they're so on and so forth and i think that's actually very important is that we do tend to or for a while there at least have a very sort of violent reaction to people who would claim that the sky is going to fall right yeah Today, though, we do actually have people who are not marginal figures. We've got people who actually have incredible sums of money, mainly individuals from Silicon Valley, uh, who do actually devote a certain amount of their time to prepping for potential social collapse events. And they might think of this in terms of it could be, you know, it could be a, a virus, but or it could be a you know sudden kind of kind of catastrophic food shortage but unsurprisingly and kind of interestingly in many respects what i've heard is that a number of them there for them their end game scenario or their disruptive event is social clashes really like above um meteorological or climatic events it's going to be a social clash it could very well be that climatic events precipitate that but their basic their basic understanding is that governments will be unable to deal with the growing inequality interesting so the people who have a lot of a lot of money are basically looking around and saying chances are people are going to see that i've got a lot of money and that they don't and that they're basically going to come target me like i don't want that so they don't want to get screwed they don't want to get screwed okay and so as a result they become uh as part of their sort of rational behavior of risk management they, this, start, they start prepping start prepping and the thing that's interesting but for them i don't think it's any more illogical than hedging their bets in their portfolio. Right, yeah. So then it's simply a rational calculation of a possibility. If it's a possibility, why wouldn't I prepare for it if I've got the resources to do so? And so these types of, of means to kind of handle these events take on some pretty incredible forms. So there's sort of instance of essentially wealthy people from the United States, again, mainly from Silicon Valley, or people who are at least grown very wealthy in the tech, center, tech se- sector, sorry, buying up huge swaths of land in New Zealand. Right. As yeah. a safe haven. Or if they don't do that, they actually purchase, they don't just simply purchase a bunker, right, in their backyard. It's sort of like, I know it's kind of a, that's now kind of a passe sort of cold war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. what they do is they actually purchase an apartment and the apartment becomes a bunker. Oh. And so they can live there with multiple people because they do have, they've got the insight that basically spending 50 years in a bunker with four other people is probably going to suck. probably going to suck, yeah. So now it's, it's basically a, a form of gated community, but it's a gated community that's in anticipation of a huge event and as a result is fortified and basically built to withstand these kind of events, withstand sort of incredible pressure. And so there's a couple of things to think about here on, on that level. On the one hand, this is simply the expression of a society that's fascinated with survival or attuned to survival amongst the very, very wealthy, right? The other part of it though, and it goes back to your point about sort of detachment and retention is that basically there is a period of time and this has happened for this period of time where essentially resources and power and connections produce, give people the means to actually not, Truly, never truly because they're bound materially, they're bound socially, they're bound economically to a certain form of society, but on the perception level, it gives them the power to remove themselves from society. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's essentially what, what this is to a very large degree, right? And I mean, when we do think about dystopian kind of visions that did emerge in the 80s, I'm thinking about Blade Runner and other, other kind of films, usually we expressed 
the disconnect between the wealthy and the poor vertically. Yeah. Right. People drove sky taxis, which are, by the way, are coming. Well, are you just dropping that? Yeah, I'm just going to drop that. Those, I'm not, oh, I'm not okay. dropping that like in my own, like, oh, I think sky, sky taxis are on the way. No, like Uber's like, actually put money into like, – they've got workable prototypes. Like buy stocks and sky taxis? If you can find a company that's making them and that's, you can see the promo videos, they have prototypes. Those will probably be here in 2025. Sweet. Well, not for us. We're just going to get gum thrown at us. <laughs> you know, if anybody wants to uh, take a sky taxi out to the forest – and uh, come and podcast with, like you know, sit on the podcast with us. I'd, uh, I'd, I will have you uh, park your sky taxi wherever you'd like. You know, could be on the roof, could be uh, in the backyard, uh, wherever you want to float that thing. But anyways, I guess I guess the point <laughs> being is that we used to express it vertically, and now we're just finding other ways to express that kind of ability to disconnect from society, right? To disconnect yeah. from your your. Uh, to give the illusion of being able to move outside it. And what's kind of fascinating about that, of course, is that sort of liberal social theory, like liberal theories from Hobbes to Rousseau, right, is ultimately what's the basis of society is that you. Now, Aaron, uh, the picture that you've painted for us uh, revolves around the concept of survival. It starts with the idea that um, the genre of cultural artifact uh, that we have come to embrace, uh, the dystopic genre, uh, is actually more of a representation of certain anxieties, uh, personal relationships, uh, social conditions. Um, it manifests itself in, in a few ways, uh, preppers, those who want to prepare for a catastrophe being one of them, um, but also on some other psychological and psychosocial levels, uh, such as you know the levels of resilience, the levels of uh, political retrenchment through stoicism. There is a critique, I think, that could be leveled at this analysis that says, well, you know, this is kind of fantasy, right? Like these people are doing these things, but it's because they're watching the walking dead. Like it's not actually real. Now I'm going to level that critique just for a counter argument. Um, uh, But so, you know, what's kind of your response to, you know, this is all just kind of, you know, social science, mumbo jumbo, whatever. Um, Like what do you say that? Well, I mean, this is, this is the interesting thing uh, on a number of levels is that okay sorry there's a couple ways to respond to that um do we actually have mass numbers of the elite running into the countryside or running into remote locations to live in bunkers or live in sort of new fortified towers no right um but this i think is the compelling one compelling aspect of theory and one thing that's useful about theory is that we do have what might be termed in another discipline that I've kind of been, you know, flirting with a bit, uh, called foresight. Uh, we do have what we might call weak signals, and what weak signals are is they're things that aren't trends. They're not quite yet a social trend, but they're indications that under the right conditions, this becomes possible. And theory actually gives us, I think, the perspective to think about other historical periods of time. Think about how other social relations have coalesced or fallen apart. And by having that kind of reflection, we're able to begin to look at things and say, you're right, we don't have this at the point of being a, a complete social force or a, a large empirical study, studyable thing. But we do have enough information here to infer that this is quite possible and in some instances has already happened. The other point, too, that I think is important is so uh, the question of, okay, 
what you're really saying is that The Walking Dead has scared, you know, for lack of a better word, scared the shit out of people to the point that they're now emulating The Walking Dead. Yeah, I think that could be like uh, one critique. Yeah, I think, and that's an interesting critique. Uh, My own kind of perspective of it is that I generally, um, my approach to social media, my sorry, not social media, my approach to media, my approach to what we'd call fiction is obviously that, you know, the, it's not ever the case that one sort of imitates the other, as other people would say. It's that ultimately what we understand to be fiction, what we develop is co-constructive with the relationships that already exist, right? It's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's always, it's never the case that you could say that The Walking Dead produced X. It's like, well, but what would be the conditions? What is it about our particular moment in time that makes it possible to think about The Walking Dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's sadly, this isn't, there's obviously a whole, and the thing is you can go back to a whole series of different junctures that might, you know, shed some light on why that happens and where those forces are coming from. But I mean, it is kind of interesting that The Walking Dead comes out in 2004. Yes. Right. And it's, it's basically a American disaster. It's an American perception of the world yeah. falling down. And then four years later, it almost did. Financially. And three years before, and, you know, the, Again, the financial epicenter gets gets struck. Yeah. So I think that I think that's a really uh, important point. I think that the, the that skepticism though is also important because if what we're saying are things that look like they're coming together, well, obviously things that look like they're coming together can be disrupted and reconfigured, and so they can always have different expressions that at this period of time are obviously beyond our comprehension. Um, so I think your response gets to the heart of what actually fuels the the notion of survival right so it's it's this idea that in the face of an unpredictable or unknown completely unknown future we might know parts of it uh we must take action now and it's not survival necessarily to always say i'm not going to do anything uh so not doing anything doesn't constitute survival that's not a survival tactic unless like playing dead but playing dead is actually doing something right mm-hmm. um so we have to have a little bit of foresight. I think this is what you're getting at. We have to have a little bit of foresight, a little bit of knowledge uh, to be able to take action to do something. And in doing so, uh, you know, collectively we constitute some sort of survivalist sort of trend. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely a uh, knowledge, a portion of knowledge and sort of informing our action, of course, is always, is always a key part. Um, the other element here too that I kind of had wanted to touch upon that I think is quite telling is that there is another sort of theoretical avenue we could kind of briefly touch upon to think think through some of this and that's actually a whole very interesting field of work on the concept of pacification. Okay, yeah. What do you mean by pacification? Well, pacification actually, the first term that I see it coming up with uh, is through the social theorist Max Weber. And Weber talks about pacification as something that's essential to to the modern kind of social structure of the state. That basically when we live in society, we need to begin to acclimatize ourselves to a series of expectations. So for instance, one notion of pacification is simply our timetables. That when you go to catch the bus to get to work, you anticipate that the bus will show up. And I'm like pissed off when it doesn't. And you expect that you'll pay the same amount each time. And you expect that the bus will be a relatively safe place. It's the same thing too. When we stand by roads, we have expectations that the drivers will drive a certain way that they won't come up onto the curb, right? Essentially. Well, how are uh, these flying taxis going to work? I don't know. It's going to really 
That's going to mess everything mess up. Mess everything up. All right. Um, but essentially, this is this idea that society or that our social reality is measurable, it's controllable, and it's predictable. Right. So a theorist who actually goes much further than this, than Weber, is a guy named uh, Norbert Elias, a really interesting theorist, kind of a nice sort of patron saint to the modern academic in the sense that he never gets to hold an academic job until he's nearly dead. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's you know it sort of has resonance. Um, and now all his works are like held up in this copyright fiasco. So like current living academics are having such a hard time getting hold of what he's written that <laughs> he could never publish because he never had a job. And the like, it's just yeah, it just really yeah, it didn't work out so well. No. Um, but one thing that I take away from from Elias is that he says yes, pacification is incredibly important. But one thing that happens with pacification uh, that's kind of novel. And you can see it happening kind of throughout the Enlightenment period is that people need to develop or not need to, but people begin to develop uh, foresight. They begin looking ahead at actions that are possible, right? And what he basically make, he makes reference to are chains of determination that suddenly it becomes not only possible, possible because things are relatively predictable and stable, but it also becomes essential that people start to think about their behavior in relationship to long series of action. Right? And obviously the important point there is that people begin to think about rules and norms being relatively set in, set in stone, right? Whereas perhaps, so for instance, if I'm a merchant, I might be able to think that, well, I know the regime in France has these types of rules and these types of rules are unlikely to change. And I know these people and things will be fine if I make a contract with someone in Venice. Whereas, you know, perhaps 300 years earlier, well, it could very well be that like the Lord that I was going to have the relationship with changes his mind or he gets killed, he gets thrown out, right? Essentially, right, there's, right, there's a right. predictability. Yeah. And what comes with that predictability, again, is this ability to think ahead of events and plan accordingly. Well, that gives us some insight today that I think perhaps we're going through a period where what was understood to be a pacified environment in terms of our expectations about what's predictable and what's modelable, what could be modelled, is up for grabs. Yeah. Right? So we're kind of living in this moment where the whole element of pacification is starting to crumble apart. And if that starts to crumble apart and we can't think ahead in terms of these long chains of relative certainties, and we can't base our actions upon them, that also means, too, that we're retreating from the social. That's yes, yeah, yeah. And I think that, that, okay, so, like, retreating from the social, I think, was um, where we needed to end, uh, where we needed to end up in the analysis, because I think on the next episode, uh, we talk about uh, the idea, uh, the character or the embodiment of the wolf. And uh, it's my understanding, maybe through Fargo, maybe. Okay, definitely yeah, through yeah, Fargo. Through Fargo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the wolf kind of encompasses uh, the notion of that, right? The retreatment of social norms, um, but yet the ability to play the game on the inside um, for its own benefit. Yeah. So Something I, like that. Yeah, I think what we're going to get at is, um, on the one hand, absolutely that initially the wolf was the antithesis to civilization, that it yeah. was this retreat of the social. Yeah. What we'd like to get into, or I think we're going to touch upon, is that something that Fargo does so so very interestingly is that it inverts that. And it actually says that if we go back to, for instance, Romulus and Remulus, but also the character played by Billy Bob Thornton, that we're actually looking at a civilization founded on wolves. Oh, okay, okay. Save that for next episode. Um, Aaron, that, that was a lot. Um, it was great. It was, um, you know, it combined the theoretical with the practical. We got to talk about a couple of our favorite shows. We did. Uh, like The Walking Dead. Uh, amazing. 100. 
Fantastic. Uh, we even dropped a little bit of Lost in there, a little bit of Fargo. That was good. Uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, dystopian novels. 20 Days Later. 20 Days Later. We did a lot in there. If you have any suggestions for us, if you have questions uh, for Aaron, this is how you can get into contact with us. Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter, and we are at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the SimPod. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com, where you will find a corrections and additions section where we will add links to articles uh, throughout the summer. Uh, so make sure to check that out. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on your podcatcher of choice. Please give us a rating and review. It really helps the show. Aaron, thank you so much again for, I think, what is going to be an amazing five or six episodes. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward uh, to it. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to come back with some recommendations. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Phil and Aaron stuck around. He's still with us uh, for some recommendations. Aaron, you got a bottle of beer in front of you. Uh, tell us about it. I do. Uh, thanks, Phil. Uh, I'm up here for Phil's birthday. Uh, it, it is my birthday. We're, we're doing a birthday podcast. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, but uh, obviously we, we're going to do this podcast, but wanted to be able to do it with a clear head or relatively clear head, right? Um, so I picked Muskoka Detour beer. Uh, it's got a low alcohol content, so you can continue to... What is it rated at? 4.3, yeah, that's, which is uh, lower for these days, given is, you yeah. find sevens and sixes. Yep. Uh, it's a crisp, nice tasting beer, very drinkable, uh, and it's, uh, it's from Ontario. Yeah, and I think um, if I read on the label, it said unfiltered. It is unfiltered. So yeah. uh, I didn't get any sediment on the bottle of mine. Nor did I, but I guess if there was some there, that would be normal. Okay. No, I really enjoyed it. It was um, it was really like crisp. It was clean. Uh, we drank it pretty cold. Uh, I think you know. I think uh, it's probably necessary. Probably necessary for that. Um, and we drank it out of the bottle. There's some beers that I will say that you have to pour into a, a into a, like a proper glass, but this one out of the bottle seemed fine. That was great. That's really all I got to say about it. That's all you got to say about it? Um, I have another beverage. Uh, because this is birthday pod, I um, I treated myself. So if uh, if anybody's listened to the podcast before, you know that I like the Florida Kenya rum. Uh, now, I went, to the sh- I went to the shop, and they didn't have any. So I picked up something else. Uh, this is the El Dorado 12-year rum. Um, did it with uh, Coke, just regular plain straight up Coke with some ice and a little bit of lemon. Uh, it was delicious. It was great. It's uh it's a very flavorful rum, full bodied. Uh, I wouldn't say to have too many of them. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's so good and it's so smooth that you, I think you could find yourself becoming quite drunk quite quickly without realizing it. And then you're just out of rum. <laughs> yeah. You're just out of rum after, uh, it comes in a really neat kind of bottle. It's not like a tall bottle. It's a kind of a short stubby round bottle. Uh, it looks really cool. The picture on it's nice. Uh, but anyway, it's like, a, it's a solid 12 year. Interestingly, uh, the Florida Kenya. Seven year that I buy rates uh, at about thirty three bucks. 
This is a 12-year, and it rates at 36. Wow. So not that much price difference, but it is a completely different type of rum. Um, I, I, I think I like both equally uh, for different occasions, but this was my birthday rum, and uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that rum and coke, actually. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. Um, if you have any recommendations for us, or if you'd like, uh, you know, if you have any questions or more, if you want more information about some recommendations, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the SimPod. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and your podcatcher of choice. That was a really fun episode. Thanks a lot for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And uh, we will see you soon. Yes. Hey, hey.